uh, 1600s uh, guy Wu Yoke, or also called Wu Yoxing. He talked about plagues as being this freakish pathogen that's not cold, not wind, not all the normal things. And then he says it, it's not something that comes in from the pores. It's not that, and it doesn't affect the younger or oldest. It affects the people who are already very healthy. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation for practitioners of the art so that we may better help our patients. I was talking with a friend the other day. She was telling me about something that she'd heard on a podcast that really bothered her. Bothered her enough that she kept hitting rewind to listen again and again to the portion of the conversation that raised her anger. My first thought was, why would you torture yourself this way? And then I realized I do it as well, all the time. The thing that triggers or angers me, the tone of voice somebody used with me, the thing they said, or even worse, did, that caused some trouble to arise in me. I can't let it go. I think about it. It skips through my mind like the scratch on a vinyl record. My story machine spins up damned good reasons for why I'm right, I will go endlessly at something that fans the flames of my indignation, hurt, or pain. And here's the strange thing when you think about it. How often do you hit rewind on a podcast or reread a paragraph that brought you a moment of illumination, joy, or connection? Does this sound familiar to you? Perhaps it is hardwired into us humans to attend very closely to something that might be a danger or a threat, and we easily ignore when the world shows up as beautiful and connective. Maybe this is why gratitude requires actual, attentive, and focused practice. While anger, resentment, and frustration can easily run amok without the intervention of our attention to dial them down. I know and I suspect you know as well that in this particular moment of time, sharing your feelings and thoughts can be fraught with the peril of misunderstanding, vociferous disagreement, righteous indignation, or cancellation. It's a trouble of our times that we can take as an affliction or as an assignment. I try to come down on the side of assignment. So there might be times you hear something on geological with which you strongly disagree. And fair enough, because our profession is made up of all kinds of different people with differing points of view. My job with the podcast is not to censor or correct my guests into alignment with any particular perspective or ideology. My job is to hear what they have to say. Because these podcast conversations are unscripted, because they are genuine, real-time discussions, we most assuredly may tread into controversial territory. I'm not attempting to stir controversy, but then again, I'm going to do my best not to tiptoe around it should it show up. I suspect the way forward through these disagreeable times is to better develop the capacity to listen to others, especially those with whom we have disagreements. It's 
easier to aim at being right than to aim at understanding. But it's the gongfu of aiming at understanding that holds the potential for taking us forward. I fail at this on a regular basis, but it still seems worth aiming at. And I would encourage you, when you hear something somewhere, be it a podcast, a passage in a book, something that streams across one of your screens, something that lands with the feeling of truth and beauty, that you hit rewind for a time or two so as to allow it to sink in. We are living in troublesome times, in cinderary social change, plagues, and political upheaval. It's not hard to have your nervous system a notch or two above overload. And all the more reason to do what you can to settle your spirit and give some attention to all the ways the world is working just fine. We are better able to create the changes we want to see when we are working from our strength instead of from our stress. Today's conversation is the first in a series that we'll do this month on COVID. It was three years ago that our world ground to a halt with the fear and increasing infection rates of COVID. It's been quite a ride these past three years. And as the coronavirus goes from being novelly frightening to part of the seasonal endemic mix, we are now challenged with distilling the lessons learned from COVID and to consider how we might respond to future global scares. Over the next four weeks, we'll be discussing the experience of the past three years as a way to pause and reflect on the troublesome times that we've just lived through. In this conversation, I will be talking to Daniel Altshuler, who is an herbalist and acupuncturist who lives in one of the ground zero cities of the pandemic, Seattle, Washington. Our conversation with Daniel is coming up right after Shop Talk, the clinical nuts and bolts portion of the digital campfire here. It's all practical material on treating patients using acupuncture or herbs, along with a smattering of the how-to of running that fantastic machine for social good and change, your practice. But first, a word from the folks who make it possible for you to enjoy Geological. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But 
That has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Daniel learned his Chinese medicine apprentice style in Taiwan. So not only did he get a wealth of deep experience with his teacher there, he also had the opportunity to put the formulas of the Shang Hanlun and Wen Bing to work in treating the seasonal infectious diseases that run rampant in Southeast Asia. He's got a few things to say about the pandemic and herbal medicine. We'll be getting into that shortly. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right. Roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hello, this is Kristen Wisgerda in Massachusetts with a SOM case study from my practice. 
I've been practicing psalm acupuncture since Toby Daly started teaching it, and I'm now teaching in this tradition. I hope this case will inspire more acupuncturists to study psalm, while I also hope that it will be interest for those who are already practicing psalm. In 2019, a patient came to me for a return visit. She was jubilant because she had been discharged from the wound care clinic she had been attending twice weekly for over two months. The wound had resulted from a fall two months prior when she scraped her left shin. Two weeks before her jubilant visit, she came to see me complaining of fatigue and wooziness in her head. And oh yeah, she also had this giant wound on her leg. It was all wrapped up during that visit, but she showed me a picture that had been taken the day before. The overall wound was eight inches long and three inches wide. It had kind of a purpley bruised look um, with some redness on the periphery. In the center was a four inch by one inch area of exposed moist granular tissue that hadn't epithelialized. I treated her with some style acupuncture that day. When she went back to the wound care clinic 40 hours after acupuncture, so less than two full days, the open area of the wound had fully closed over. The clinic had been preparing to use placenta tissue on her wound as a last-ditch treatment because the standard treatment just wasn't helping. Now they had no need to do any treatments, and instead they discharged her. The doctors and the nurses all, comment, all commented that they had never seen such a big change in a wound in three days, but that it couldn't possibly be from acupuncture. My patient is convinced that they are wrong, and me too, since I've seen acupuncture, especially SAM-style acupuncture, produce very dramatic treatment results very quickly. SAM is a Korean monastic tradition of acupuncture, and it's organized around the 12 primary channel systems. These channel systems include the channels and their respective organs. The 12 channels are described as carrying particular elemental qualities in a way that synthesizes their yin-yang, five-phase, and six conformation qualities. Particular relationships among the channel systems outside of the way they're usually organized in yin-yang, five-phase, and six conformations. So these particular relationships are seen as being crucial for health, but also the cause of pathology. These relationships are one of counterbalancing. So these 12 channels are broken up into six-channel pairs. So for instance, in this one counterbalancing relationship is between the heart and the urinary bladder. The heart is yin double fire, as it's of the water phase in Shao yin fire. And this double fire is seen to counterbalance double cold water, because urinary bladder is yang double cold, it being of the cold water phase and of tai yang cold. The other five channel pairs are gallbladder paired with pericardium, liver paired with sanjiao, kidney paired with small intestine, lung paired with stomach, and spleen paired with large intestine. What I love about this style of practice is that it demands that you have an intimate relationship with elemental qualities and directional movements, dampness and dryness, hot and cold, consolidation and dynamic movement, up and down, dark and light, 
internal and external. You have to know how to recognize the way that these all of these play out in the dynamic complexity of a living system. Because with each psalm treatment, you are using four-point needle technique to strongly add these qualities when they are deficient. The power of the system means that when you diagnose and treat correctly, results can be amazing, as with my patient. But the other side of the coin is that incorrect diagnosis and treatment can lead to adverse events. What I also love about SOM is that it's strongly observation-based. We look at skin quality and coloration and markings. We look at people's hair and their symmetry and their eyes and their hands and their heels and their posture and their body shape and size, the quality of the flesh. We look at their socioeconomic status and we also look at their sex appeal. So everything's a potential pointer to the channel imbalances, creating health or creating pathology. The observational nature of SOM has me deeply appreciating humanity in a new way. It's required that I check my judgments at the door and really try to see these elemental qualities in my patients. Like, none of these qualities are good or bad. There's just too much or too little of, of certain qualities, and all of these qualities are essential to life. Toby Daly often describes SOM as love medicine. I can attest to this and tell you that this practice has enriched my life by really enhancing this appreciation of humanity. So back to my patient. How did I help her that day? The first clue is that her wound was squarely on the stomach channel. In some, channel location means that we must look at the state of that channel system, in this case stomach, and the state of its counterbalancer in this case, the lung. So even though we often treat channel pairs other than those where the problem manifests, we look beyond the channel location when qualities other than the channel are the more prominent part of the picture. For this situation, both the channel and the quality of the problem and the overall condition of the patient told me that the counterbalancing pair that included the stomach was the problem area. So in this case, we need to look at both stomach, the channel and the quality, and lung, the channel and the quality. So lung is yin. It's dry metal and tie-in dampness. So it has this com- the combined qualities of metal dryness and tie-in dampness. These manifest as a dry exterior and a damp interior, but also a capacity to gather chi and resources and create a firm inflation through the body, like a balloon that has plenty of air to fill it out so the surface is firm and the balloon is buoyant. When the lung is excess, the skin is too dry and the body is too fat and kind of too overfull, like over an overinflated balloon. The voice can be loud because there's such an accumulation of chi that just kind of comes out. The patient has an overabundance of chi in dampness that often creates symptoms of stagnation. Stomach, on the other hand, is yang, earth dampness, and yang ming dryness. So the damp and the dry 
are in different locations and um, belong to belong to different aspects compared to the lung. So when stomach is in excess in relationship to the lung qualities, the patient presents with a damp exterior and a dry interior and a tendency to not accumulate dampness in she in the interior. So we could say kind of an interior deficiency or a lack of ability to hold on to resources. Besides having moist or sweaty skin, that dampness on the exterior, in less than normal amount of body flesh, kind of a skinnier presentation, stomach excess patients will have soft voices. The balloon of the body is deflated and lacks the chi and resources to fill out all the way to the surface. So in some, there's a saying, sometimes channel and sometimes quality. We already know that the stomach channel is where the problem is manifesting. Let's look at how the quality of the problem area and the qualities of the patient present as an imbalance of the lung and stomach channel pair. So my patient with this wound was 73 at the time. She was about 20 pounds overweight with thin and fragile skin that was extremely dry and flaky. Her surface was also remarkable for a thin layer of fluid just under the skin throughout her body and extensive purpura. Her legs were also mildly edematous on top of this like extra fluid under her skin. And her legs were also full of very fine varicosities. They often felt achy and sore to her. For all of this extra fluid and weight, the balloon of her body seemed more deflated than overinflated. So more stomach quality than lung quality. Her thenar eminences were also deflated, but her chest wall was of normal size. The chest and thenar eminences are important areas for evaluating the state of the lung. Her voice was soft and weak, and her abdomen was soft and squishy. She was very chatty, and but kind of caught up in her own to-do list and other people's problems. She wasn't especially hot or cold. Her chief complaint had been tiredness, but not the wound. She kind of she has to limit fats, otherwise she'll have diarrhea. Um, she's an accountant who was still working 20 to 25 hours a week, and she was attending exercise classes several times a week and also attending to her Ill, Ill sister, which was a big expenditure of energy for her. By nature, she's a big pushover who continues to see clients who annoy and exhaust her, even though she would be well off without the extra money. She felt better with nine hours of sleep, but would only get eight. Other complaints during that visit included wooziness in her her forehead, kind of an off-balance feeling that she denies needing to stabilize herself and sit down. So here's a simplified analysis of her symptoms according to Sam. And I'm only highlighting the aspects of her presentation that for me had the most clinical weight for her situation at the time. And we really need to, I mean, the grossest thing in the room was this wound. So we really needed to focus on the dynamics that were creating the wound. So the presence of the stomach channel gives weight to both lung and stomach involvement. So that that has equal weight for both lung and stomach. Even though the the problem is on the stomach channel, we give lung as much attention as the stomach in psalm. Lung energy manifests, again, with dry skin and extra body weight and good resources. 
And she had all of these, these aspects. So remember, lung is dry metal on the surface and damp tie-in on the interior with an ability to accumulate chi and resources. So she had good, she had plenty of exterior wealth. You know, she had um, plenty of money and um, was very comfortable financially. So a snapshot might have had us thinking that the lung could be in excess here, but we have to look at the state of her stomach energy to see the balance between the two. So for her, her stomach energy manifested as dampness on the exterior showing up with the moist open wound. So because of the dramatic presentation with this wound, we give it the most clinical weight, like this is the problem right here. We can't get distracted by, by other things. Um, other manifestations of her stomach energy are her soft voice and her deflated body and thenars. Weighing the balance of lung and stomach qualities, the stomach qualities for her are more dominant. So we can see that the imbalance is of stomach excess and a relative lung deficiency. So the magic treatment that healed her wound was supplementing this relatively deficient lung to counterbalance the excess stomach energy. Lung bringing dryness to the exterior and resources to the interior. The resources that lung brings to the interior are moisture, but more importantly for this case, chi. Supplementing lung blew up her deflated balloon so that she could get all the way to the surface, bringing everything her body needed to heal that wound lightning fast. The fluid under her skin could be considered either interior or exterior. In this case, I choose to think of it as exterior. Her low energy could also come from lung or stomach excesses, too much stagnant chi or not enough chi. Too much stagnant chi is chi bound up and not, you know, not available to the system. And then deficient chi is also obviously chi not available to the system. In this case, other signs pointed to a stomach excess, internal emptiness, rather than a stagnant lung excess. Not only did her wound heal, she also reported a big lift in her energy after this treatment. And I still see her every month or two for a variety of conditions or just a tune-up. If you're interested in learning more about SAM, I highly recommended the resources here on Sheological, especially the introduction to SAM taught by Toby Daly. Toby's class provides you with the foundation needed to practice SAM. SAM seems simple, but it really is very sophisticated. Its strong power must be used with great caution. Don't try this at home until you have taken Toby's class. Geological also has other free and paid classes on SAM taught by Toby Daly, and I recommend all of them. As Toby's teaching assistant, my offerings include a very active subscription SAM mentorship forum on the White Pine Circle. I also taught an eye observation class that is SAM specific, and this is available on demand on Geological. My latest course on Geological is the upcoming 12 Channels of SAM, which will begin in April 2023. The prerequisite for this class is Toby's intro class. This 12 channels class takes the information from Toby's intro class and provides a deeper dive into these foundational materials.
So we delve into how to better identify the most essential elements of the channels. Learning to assign clinical weight is key to correct diagnosis and also makes the process so much easier. This will be a very clinically oriented class. A private forum will keep the conversation going between classes, and it's also a place to ask questions, even if you can't make the class live. Please look to the show notes for more information for all of these resources. I hope you will join me. Daniel Altschuler, welcome back to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a while. I think the last time we were together on Geological was at close to the beginning of this pandemic, the beginning of the plague years. Weren't you on one of our panels where we were at the very beginning talking about, like, what is this thing and what do we do about it? I think I was on pre-Geological, actually, your first iteration of this. Yeah. Well, I know you were on that, Everyday Acupuncture, but I think, look, I own the damn show. I should know if you were on or not. Look at me. I'm terrible at doing my own research. I can't remember what I did yesterday, but this is amazing show that you have. And it's just so much information. I hear my students talking about what they learn from your programs all the time. Really? You think I should charge them for it? Maybe I get some tuition money. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in all seriousness, we are, this is the month of March when this airs. It's all COVID all month. It's March COVID madness here on Geological. I love it. It just seemed like a good time to come back and you know, look at where we've been, look at where we are, where, you know, where things might be going, again, from a Chinese medicine point of view. And I mean, look, in school and even outside of school, we all read Shang Han Lun, or at least heard of it. We've heard of the Wen Bing. We know that we're supposed to be famous in Chinese medicine for treating pandemics. And then an actual pandemic shows up on our doorstep. And uh, I think I kind of want to do a postmortem, like, how did we do? How do we do at the beginning? How do we do in the middle? What are we doing now? That's a really interesting question. And I have taught Wen Bing in the States since I moved back here in 2006. And it's been a class I've taught at multiple Chinese medical colleges. And uh, I've also taught infectious diseases a few times, you know, a class that was devoted to how to treat Chinese infectious diseases with Chinese medicine on the field, you know, how to recognize. So every time I taught these classes, they're all very much about talking about epidemics and plagues and things like that. And Chinese medicine has so much to offer. But the students just kind of look at me with a little bit of interest, but also with a complete disconnect because they live in just such healthful comfort, you know, I mean, other than the cold or, or whatever. And so once the this pandemic hit, now I teach the course and everybody's like, oh, that's, I get it, you know? So it's very interesting for me as a, an instructor, the shift in how I can convey this information of people, they just completely get it. So when you're teaching methods for the kinds of illnesses that are, let's call it relegated to history, at least in a person's experience, because they haven't gone through it, not so interesting, like, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting historical artifact. And so you're not that interested. Like, how, why should I be interested in that? We don't have that. 
And then, of course, after you've lived locked down or whatever for a while, or notice people around you being very, very sick, maybe even dying, totally get your attention in a different way. For sure. You know, I think for me, before this pandemic hit, I was living in Taiwan and I was there during the SARS epidemic in 2003. No, that was nothing compared to this. Well, I was in ground one or something, however they term it. It was a, also from Guangzhou, China, and then it hit all the Asian countries. I remember that. I was in Beijing. You were in Beijing, so even more. But Taiwan had quite a few deaths and they had quarantine hospitals set up. It was just the whole architecture of how it was organized by the government and all the chaos as well, all the fear. You know, I lived right through that. My daughter was born in one of the quarantine hospitals. Was she at a quarantine hospital? No, not that one. She was at Sanjin Zhongyi and the Tri-Services Military Hospital. Because I did a lot of work there, we decided to use that hospital. That was one of the quarantine hospitals. The Heping was the one that was shut down. It was a big disaster. That's right. That's right. That was uh, doctors were running out the windows when they shut that down. It was very interesting. <laughs> So let's start with SARS-CoV-1, right? Back in, was it 20, 2003, 2004? Well, I remember it was probably 2002 when it was started. And then 2003 was, uh, my daughter was born in March. So it was like right in the middle of it. It had been going on for a long time before that in China, before it was announced to the world. I remember being in China for the uh, Chinese New Year, right, Guanyin, and I was headed down south with a friend to travel. We we're going down to Yunnan. I remember being on an airplane and reading the newspaper. I just gotten to the point where I could actually read a newspaper in Chinese. So I'm like practicing my Chinese. I'm reading the newspaper, and I remember thinking, okay, either my Chinese still really sucks because I'm not understanding this, or there's some heavy shit happening in Guangzhou right now. And it turned out there was some heavy shit happening in Guangzhou. Yeah, I was taking a class for my PhD program, and we had a professor from Guangzhou come in and teach. It was a group of Taiwanese doctors doing this together. And uh, we we're all in this class, and he was talking about some weird stuff that was happening, and doctors were running to the hills and the country and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we looked at each other like, what is he talking about? And about two, three months later, it burst open. So it was, it had been smoldering for quite a while, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. These things tend to. Now, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about the SARS epidemic, which you know was a big thing if you were in Asia. How were you looking at it and treating it at that time? You were working with Dr. Lee, and he, he's a guy who's not going to like shy away from a fight on this one. It was very much locked down. If you had a, any fever or cold, you were sent immediately to one of the quarantine hospitals. There was no access by Chinese doctors at that time. So there was actually no exposure of this disease, I mean, in a medical way, to by Chinese medical doctors. So there was nothing, actually. And Taiwan had such a good system set up very quickly that it did not spread really through the population, I mean, in a big way. So actually, it was there, and I experienced it as a citizen, so to speak, but not medically. Didn't get a chance to treat it. The people you were studying with and Dr. Lee, were you talking about it in terms of Chinese medicine? And if someone you knew got sick and was not in hospital, what you'd do? I do remember taking a walk with Dr. Lee around the local campus, the university campus nearby. 
And I was talking to him about it. And whenever you're next to him, he's always talking formulas. If you're eating food, he's talking, you know, what the food on the table will do to you and or for you, you know. So we were chatting a little bit about the SARS. It was quite interesting because typical pattern was four or five days before the onset of the big fever and the lungs and all that infection or inflammation in the lungs, the patients would experience diarrhea and then it would move into like a, a lung issue. And so it was very much this large intestine heat, you know, moving to the lungs type of thing. And, you know, because we're Dr. Lee and, and my own interest in how I see diseases typically comes out of the Shanghan Nun. So we were, I think, Gugen Chinian Tang and Gugen Tang types of things were where we were, you know, what we were discussing and what we thought would be the best ideas for this. So you were seeing as an attack to the Yangming, not to the Taiyin spleen, but to the Yangming large intestine. That's true. Yeah, more like, that's right. No, I think lung large intestine as like just a general Zhangfu pathology link, you know, so you have heat in the large intestine, it transfers to the lungs. Not thinking in that Taiyin way, but yeah, more like a Yangming heat. I mean, you know, and fair enough, because you could easily also see it. Well, I don't know if you could easily see it. You could maybe make a case for, oh, it strikes the tie-in, tie-in spleen. It loses its regulation. You end up with diarrhea and then transmits to tie-in lung. Although this was less of a deficiency and more of a heat. I mean, I didn't get it and I didn't see the stools, but I think it was more of the heat type of a diarrhea. And then the lungs would just fill up with fluid, get inflamed and get scarred all over which is what heat. And the people that were most at risk for serious disease and mortality were the healthy people, you know, the younger people, not the young babies or the older people. And that's very typical of plagues. You know, it's the people who have a very robust immune system that tend to get hit more because their immune system overacts and it just destroys themselves in that way. It's interesting, isn't it, that here's a pathogen. We often think, oh, it's a really vicious pathogen because a pathogen flipping killed these young people. But when you step back and you look at it and go, here's a pathogen, and in young people who are strong, it works this way, and then the person's own Wei Qi, their own immune system, their own Zheng Qi in a sense, their own strength is what kills them because of the overreaction. Yeah, so a lot of the treatment was just steroids to try to suppress that. And uh, yeah, I think they were able to figure out some way to help patients just by steroids, which suppresses the inflammatory process. It was quite interesting in that regard, you know, and a lot of plagues were, are like that. The uh, 1600s uh, guy Wu Yoke, or also called Wu Yoxing, he talked about plagues as being this freakish pathogen that's not cold, not wind, not all the normal things. And then he says it, it's not something that comes in from the pores. It's, it's not your father's Oldsmobile. It's not that. And it doesn't affect the younger or oldest. It affects the people who are already very healthy. So he had a very interesting statement about or observation about epidemics and plagues. I, I think that pretty much nails it, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah. Which also takes me to another sidewinding point, which you know a lot of people, I'm sure, ask you, ask me, ask many practitioners. It's like, I'm afraid of COVID, this one, what can I do to boost my immune system? Like, your immune system's fine. You don't need it any stronger. It's not the point. Of course, there are people who are very weak and had, you know, all kinds of stuff, which also obviously were susceptible to being 
having a you know high risk of death with COVID, COVID two we're talking about, but just a lot of healthy people were also just super at risk. And and to me, I wasn't clinically interested in just running around helping people's immune system. Well, I think this is one of those places actually where we fail as oriental medicine practitioners because we so often with one part of our mind be thinking Western medicine. And how can we not? Look, if we're Westerners, we can't not have that part of us. That's not something wrong. That's just part of who we are. And we've got this other way of thinking through the medicine that we've learned in practice. It's very, very different, right? You cannot take immune system and map it directly into East Asian medicine. It doesn't work. It just doesn't. And then you have people in the West, and of course, our understanding is our immune system is what protects us. It's the police force. It's the army. It's the, you know, the good guys protecting us from the bad guys, right? That's right. But that idea doesn't work in Chinese medicine. Absolutely. And it doesn't quite work in Western medicine either in a certain way. I think it's one of these ideas that floats around, you know, in the natural medical world sometimes or, you know, immune system boosted, you know, the supplement industry, all this kind of stuff is, for me, I prefer to talk about modulating the immune system, which is much more useful, especially in a Chinese medical environment. We want to regulate, we want to modulate, you know, the idea that we're all about tonics and boosting and all this stuff, that's kind of folk medicine, you know, that's for the people who want to live a long life or virility or, you know, all that stuff. But when you're really in the clinic treating diseases, you have to adjust what's too much and what's not enough. And that comes right down to what we do. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Ann Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. It's really the heart of the medicine, as far as I can tell. Yes, that is our strength. You talked about our weakness, which is exactly right. And I think our strength is the modulation part, regulation. Agreed. Yeah, there's such a great word for it in Chinese too, right? Tiaoli. Tiaoli, yes. I love it. Those two words are so full of meaning. Tell us a little bit about Tiali from your point of view. Well, Tiao, the character Tiao, I always like that character because if you pronounce it Diao in modern Chinese, it means uh, rhythm. So, you know, like if you use the word blue, Lan Diao, it's the word for blues music. So I love all the ways that it's used. But yeah, Tiao, Tiaoli to regulate, usually it's used for the liver lung dynamic 
across this midriff where things are not ascending, descending, or the chi is not flowing very well, which often is, at least now in a kind of a, you know, modern textbook Chinese medicine is given to the liver. You know, that's the function of the liver. It's not wrong, but it's maybe a little bit too much on the liver in modern day. But that being able to allow the chi to flow in the directionality that it's supposed to, you know, through all the organ systems, I think that's a big part of this tiaoli, at least in terms of how it's understood in the herbal medicine formulas in the textbooks. Yeah. I would think even in acupuncture to some degree, at least in my way of thinking, and that it's, I mean, there's like a multiplicity that encompasses. It's not just I'm turning a knob to adjust, like say, bass or treble. It's looking to more through multiple ways create this modulation and balance. And, you know, I think so often we get caught in these dichotomies. There's too much of something. I'm going to cut something away. Or, you know, like we were just saying, well, I'm worried about getting sick, so I want to boost my immunity. It misses the mark. Yes. Yeah, we had a little a little run-in with SARS-CoV-1 some years ago. I remember in Beijing at that point, um, you could not buy Bonlan Gun because it was gone. Taiwan too. It was hoarded. Yeah, yeah. Same thing, right? And I think Jin Yin Hua, you probably couldn't get it. There were a number of herbs. And they're usually the cold, I'm using air quotes here, antiviral from a modern point of view. And what would happen is it's not because Chinese medicine practitioners were using a bunch of it. It's because the population understands a wee bit of Chinese medicine because they've all grown up with it. So like, oh my God, a viral thing, Bailan Gun. And like, poof, overnight, it's gone from every single pharmacy because the entire population just snarked it up. That's right. I think uh, Banan Gen, I remember very well. Dr. Lee doesn't use it so much in that way. So it, that wasn't a problem for our clinic. I remember Tangju also, it was something that was out there as good for this problem. I think, you know, maybe that was because of the bowel movements, the diarrhea. So Tangju kind of has a function for clearing that up. And that's a maybe a top 10 herb for Dr. Lee. So he kind of hoarded a bunch of boxes for that. You know, but it wasn't actually in Taiwan was a little different than mainland China. I don't know mainland China's situation in the herbal supply regard, but I don't even know if supply chain was a word back then, but our supply chain was cut off. You know, we're an island nation and the ports shut down. So we had no supply of herbs at all. So, you know, I think probably a lot of the doctors just, you know, ordered as much as they could before there was nothing. Toilet paper in uh, Tsangju, you just can't get it. <laughs> <laughs> People act weirdly when things happen like this. Yeah, well, I don't think we can help it. No, no. You know, en masse, you know, look, as individuals, we can be pretty reasonable, but as groups, not so much most of the time. And the governments were really interesting, too. I remember the Taiwanese government, everybody in charge of each department of the government had to show that he or she was doing something about it. So, you know, like the uh, sanitation department had to increase the um, the sanitation department. I think they put trucks out, you know, these street washing vehicles, but they put chemicals in there to sanitize the streets. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to like sanitize the street. I don't know anybody that got COVID from licking the street. No, I can remember the taxi cabs in Beijing that have these little stickers. They're like, Right. We, this has been sanitized. Beijing taxi cab. Yeah, right. And they did that again with this. And, you know, everybody had to wipe down the chairs and clinics and stuff. And I didn't want to be disobedient. And I didn't want, you know, it's like it was a scary thing. But from my past experience, I was like, I don't think we're going to get COVID from sitting down on a chair, you know. 
But, you know, very quickly you could see the fear came and that's normal. We don't know what we're dealing with. But then over time, you know, the things, maybe it was a few months, maybe six months, some of that stuff just kind of went away, which was nice. (laughs) But it was a lot of panic in the beginning. A lot of panic in the beginning, understandable because we don't know what it is. And everything we were told was super hyper contagious. I still can't figure out why six feet meant anything if it's super hyper contagious, but that's just me. You know, it it was interesting. I remember, I still have it, I think, saved somewhere. Somebody sent me a clip from mainland China. Some scientist there was testing farts. So they had somebody fart through their underwear and pants, and then they somehow collected a sample to see if there was any viral load in the fart gas. (laughs) I don't know how they arranged that experiment, but that was reported on the news in mainland China. I have a clip of it. Well, I mean, we're laughing in a sense. Well, I mean, we're laughing actually. It does go to show like what we're capable of when we're afraid, I I think is what it comes down to. You know, I actually really hand it to the people who are the brilliant thinkers and the epidemiologists. It's really fascinating to watch how that all works. Not the people involved in politics or any of that stuff, but the ones that go to the lab and just work these problems out. They're brilliant people. Yeah, well, they're doing science. You know, which which is not great to do in public because usually people have an opinion about something before you get a result back. That's right. Absolutely. You know, and with science, you need results and it takes time. I think what I'm interested in right now, because we could do a whole post-mortem on COVID, but, you know, that's all in the past. What's got my attention right now is long COVID because... I think that's probably the most serious aspect of COVID at this point. You know, I mean, does it kill people? Yeah, it's still going to kill some people, but probably along with the flu killing people. The flu this year was really bad. I don't know about out there, but here in St. Louis, this is not scientific. This is a sampling from my tiny clinic, you know, which sees a very narrow slice of humanity. But my patients this past fall that had COVID, they're like, oh, I got COVID. I can't come in. And generally speaking, pretty mild. I mean, some of them like down for a few days or fever and chills, but the basic stuff or just sniffles. The people that had the whatever the respiratory virus was that was running around in the fall, they ended up with a head full of phlegm that would take a long time to clear out. It was very thick phlegm that would drip in the back if we're talking about the same symptom. And it was kind of created a sore throat, maybe. Is that there was a little bit of that very thick, continual, kind of a choking like phlegm. You know, it's really difficult. So COVID has changed dramatically in character as mutable wind viruses do. Long COVID is a thing. And and of course, it's in the news. I still know people that are terrified of COVID because, oh my God, I'm going to get long COVID. And you're like, long COVID. And then, you know, cue the horror music effects. But Daniel, is long COVID in any marked way different from any other post-viral syndrome that can happen to some people after a viral infection. Is it really that different? I've seen some pretty bad cases that I haven't seen before with, you know, just the average flu season. Okay. I want to know what you're seeing. I I think the most common thing is just a fatigue for whatever cause, you know, whether in Chinese medicine, dampness or phlegm or qi deficiency or, you know, whatever, that's another thing. But fatigue is always tops the list. And it's really severe fatigue. And I think different patients do have different causes of that. I've seen POTS is a big one. Maybe this is something that we should add to this. 
and I don't want to get on the bad side of anybody. Too late. You're a human being and you're stuck in the world of yin and yang. You're going to be on someone's bad side. Well, I'll be on everybody's bad side then. Well, you know, you can't do that either. I just want to preface that I am not anti-vaccine, but I have seen a lot of horrible symptoms coming from people who have had the vaccine. And, you know, I'm not a lab scientist, but almost definitely from the vaccine because of the timing and the repetition of it, getting the second vaccine, the same symptoms come back. Well, I've had POTS. I've had people, basically their life was has been, you know, just turned upside down or destroyed because of this POTS. For those who don't know, it just, you know, the heart rate can accelerate very quickly when you change posture. So from lying down on the bed to sitting up, your heart rate can go from arresting, you know, maybe it's already a little bit on the high side in the 70s or something, can shoot up to 130, 140, 150. You know, one of my patients, he gets into the shower, not so much anymore, it's much better, but it would, just by walking into the shower, he'd be, I don't remember, 150, something like that. Just a really high heart rate. And then the fatigue that comes with this, the chest discomfort and the fear and the, you know, disability that comes with the whole being in the middle of an ocean of uh, despair. So I've had people, I don't want to get too stuck in the vaccine thing. I would actually like to explore this a little bit. And here's why. It seems, well, the world in general, but our profession in particular, it seems to me, what I understand of it very much came down behind the vaccine. If you didn't get one, you were damn irresponsible. And... Now we're beginning to look at some very real effects of vaccine injury. I think it's important that we're able to speak about it. Because if we can't speak about it, we can't treat it. And if we can't speak about it, we can't identify, like, where did this actually come from? And I think that's important as time goes on. So I'm happy to speak about it. And, you know, look, if people want to write in and tell us a different opinion, that's great. It's good to have a conversation with honest differences of opinion. I agree. I think the vaccines were necessary and they did, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'm not in the back room with the data crunching, but I'm sure they saved lots and lots of lives. And I myself, I did get the vaccines, but I did see a lot of people that had side effects. And the interesting thing, this was the COVID in the early stage and the vaccines in the early stage, people, the medical doctors didn't recognize that the symptoms that the patients were talking about were connected to in the early stage of COVID, that it was COVID or, you know, the vaccines could have done it. There's kind of a a little bit of a blind spot with that. I had two patients actually very interesting that had the same underlying precondition. They had too many red blood cells. It's something that some people get, you know, women, I think more than men. And both of them, right after they received the vaccine, their feet went numb, their whole leg went numb from the knees down. And it gradually subsided, took months and months and months with treatment. And then they got the second vaccine. These are very, you know, socially responsible people, I guess we could say. And they got a vaccine again, both of them different, you know, relatively similar, but different times, got the vaccine again, and their legs numbed out again immediately the day after. And so it's it's very clear that there was some connection with that. But, uh, you know, I think most people just, you know, they get a little side effects and after a day or two went away. But some people did get hit by the vaccines for sure. And they should be recognized and not ignored by the community, I think, medical community. Well, I remember back then, if you suggested that the vaccine could be causing a problem, you could lose your job. I mean, depending on, you know, what part of the media industry you were in. The history of vaccines is also something that before COVID, I actually read a bit about who is for vaccines and who's against vaccines changes 
each time it happens. And it's whoever takes the, it's not even a right or left or red or blue, or it's not even this country. It's, you know, way back even in England at the beginning of the history of vaccines, it's, it's always been a this faction against that faction. So I don't think we should probably not get too into the controversy of the vaccine, but it is always a political thing and there is no right side to it. That's interesting. So controversy and vaccine, if we look at the natural history of vaccines, it's been with us since we've had vaccines. Yes. Yes. It's not a new thing. I'll say one interesting thing about that. I know this isn't our uh, topic of the day, but there was a smallpox epidemic that hit Boston, I think 1922, sorry, 1722 or somewhere around there. And there was somebody, a, a ship captain who decided to sneak in without going through the proper quarantine because he had people on board that were sick and he wanted to get his cargo off, you know, and it spread through the Boston Salem area. And the person who advocated kind of research and looked up how to do vaccinations for the population was the very person, the reverend who was in charge of the Salem witch trials. And so he was trying to save people's lives in this moment while he was, you know, maybe it was like a repentance or so of some sort. But the history is so interesting. That should be another, that could be a whole show. But I did see a lot of the long COVID thing back to that. You know, definitely a lot of phlegm is a big issue. Foggy headedness is a big issue. And I think the, yeah, the pots I've seen over and over again. I'm trying to think. I've seen a number of weird neurological things, just weird neurological stuff. Maybe I'm just being too much of a hammer here because I'm really struggling with this myself. I'm trying to understand it. And I'm not trying to minimize things, but I am trying to understand things. Because again, so often with a pandemic or sequela of pandemic or anything that's kind of running through the, the social sphere, you know, it kind of catches fire in people's attention and everything else like we've already described. For sure, and I've seen it as well, the fatigue sometimes even loss of taste and smell or weird, you know, problems with taste and smell that are ongoing and really arduous for people. But back to the fatigue part, and again, it's, it's not to make light of COVID. I'm not doing that. It's to try to understand how this might be in relation to other viral infections that are out there. Look, we know that there's such thing as, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, Epstein-Barr, things that, you know, back when we started doing Chinese medicine, the Western medicine community basically said, well, that doesn't exist and these people are just, you know, depressed or something. And now we know that there are long-term issues with some viruses. Again, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand, is COVID somehow worse or does it, maybe a better way to say it is, what's the unique character of the sequela of COVID? And in my sense is, in part because people have been using East Asian medicine for a long time to treat this stuff, we might be some of the best people around to help people with this stuff. If you're able to recognize the symptoms and match it to the right diagnosis and the right treatment, you know, it definitely can be super effective. And we have so many things to work with, right? We don't just have, you know, one pill or this pill or no pill. It's like we have so much in our back pocket to use. But the nature of the disease, I think there's... Um, I don't know, I think it hits different people in different ways, which is always the uh, the safe answer to go to. And it's interesting also that you mentioned, you know, Epstein-Barr, because a lot of the people who go to naturopaths, you know, Seattle has a very strong naturopathic community. There is a trend to check for Epstein-Barr, thinking that COVID is 
triggering an old Epstein-Barr virus to kind of reanimate and come alive again. So that's a big thing in the, especially in the naturopathic community I've noticed is searching for that lost and hidden EBV. I'm not sure myself. I don't know, you know, in some ways for us as Chinese doctors, it doesn't really matter what we call the virus or what we call the pathological agent. It's, you know, if it's this virus or that bacteria, it's, it's really about what we see in the patient, right? I think it's the strength of our medicine. They're very much so. We don't have to name the virus. We don't even have to know the microbiology of the virus. We have to know how different kinds of people respond to that particular influence. Yeah, that's right. Which isn't so easy. Yeah, I have an interesting patient. She, um, very, you know, fairly young, 20s, you know, quite healthy, working sports person, you know, very active. And she got hit by COVID and is had to quit work, just so fatigued that she can't function. And originally her diagnosis was abdominal. Her stomach, just a lot of pain and cramping. And if it was touched very, even lightly, it'd be a lot of pain. So it was pain with palpation. You know, for her, it was, I don't know, inflammation is way overused these days, but some inflammatory response in the abdomen getting in to look at her. And it's interesting, you know, looking sublingual veins and other areas that, you know, different people have different ways to evaluate, but she definitely has blood stasis as a part of her condition. And I don't know if that was pre-existing or not, but that's a big thing that I'm working on. And it seems to be helping a bit. It's not really a dampness. It's more of an inflammation, like a heat, somehow yamming system or abdominal system. And Along with that, there's a big blood stasis component. Blood blood stasis seems to be something that we were seeing very early on with COVID and very early on with the vaccine too, for that matter. I suspect you probably saw women in your practice after getting the vaccine whose period would go haywire for a period of time. A few. Yeah, that's right. It was very common. A bunch of practitioners were reporting that. Um, this issue with microclotting and just, you know, something with the, you know, I'm not trying to be um, inflammatory, no pun intended, but, you know, all the young men with myocarditis and, you know, healthy young men were getting, you know, the COVID shot and having trouble with their heart. So again, there's something here I'm looking as a practitioner. I'm not trying to lay blame here. I'm trying to understand, like, what is it about this weird pathogen that messes with the blood? I think the one disease set of theories is wonderful for that aspect. I think it's the best because they talk about a warm disease, something that happens very quickly. It can, you know, hit you exteriorly or at the top of the body is what, you know, they talk about, you know, now if it counterflows, if it goes in the wrong direction, it goes to the heart, right? So, you know, it goes from the lungs right to the heart, which is its neighbor, right? And so, the warm disease theory talks in the blood aspect is the heat going into the blood, right? So you have the waste, the whey level, the qi level, the ying level, and the blood level. And it can go from the Wen Bing describes how it can go from the most exterior or the superficial areas, whey level, right? Directly into ying or blood and then cause blood clots or hemorrhaging depending on how things go. And so that method of understanding the disease pathways, I think, was very helpful. You know, this reminds me so much of something some of my other teachers have said. There are uh, these teachers I'm thinking about in particular, like 
a little agnostic when it comes to Chinese medicine. They're not like, well, you know, I'm a Shang Han Lun and everything has to go through the Shang Han Lun. I hold the lineage and everything, you know, everything I see goes through the Shang Han Lun. No, these are people that, okay, what's the right fil- set of filters to use to sort this information through to see how it can be helpful to our patients? You just described beautifully how the Wen Bing gives us a way of looking at it and going, oh yeah, it could go very quickly from way all the way outside to the xue, all the way inside, and cause a, a whole lot of mischief. The Shang Han Nun talks about it also, but it's not as direct and doesn't fit as much as I think this pathogen. Well, how would the Shang Han Nun talk about that? Well, there's the yaming, there's Shaoying, where you have heart palpitations in different areas of the different levels, right? Different sections of the Shanghai Nun, there's heart palpitations. And the one that I think is most interesting in this case would be the drain section, which is, you know, often the most mysterious of them because it's so awkward and odd. So Xiaoyang or other places, it talks about Xinji or, you know, words that like the Guiding, Lingguizhu Gantang or formulas that are for heart palpitations where in how they describe it, like the kidney water is overflowing its boundary and kind of assaulting the heart and causing heart distress. And that works very well, but that's not quite the COVID model. But in the drain section, it uses the word chong, like to surge or to strike, or chong xin, right? Zheng chong. So the xin ji becomes zheng chong, which is, a, I think, a much stronger assault or, or, you know, it's not a baby slap, it's a smack to the head. And I think the drain section is also has the the blood issues as well. It's, you know, drain is pericardium and liver. And so I think that section in the, playing with that in the Shang Han Lun does work. So if you really, really know your Shang Han Lun, you, you can make a case for that then. Oh, Shang Han Lun works perfectly. I mean, I treat most of my patients I treated with Shang Han formulas, at least early stage, you know, but Wen Bing also worked really well for this. And, and it's kind of interesting. Actually, one thing I really thought was, as a practitioner, I thought was very interesting about this particular epidemic or pandemic was that it lasted for an entire year and then another year, right? And then we're into two plus years now. So the advantage that we have with this as a practitioner observing symptoms is that it's not just something that, oh, this is a seasonal cold. Let's use, I don't know, in chao san or da ching nong tang or, you know, whatever. It seems to work really well for most of my patients. So we'll call it a winds pathogen or a cold pathogen or a wind cold pathogen or what have you. But what I noticed when I was treating this over the seasons as they changed was the nature, the symptom set changed as well. And I found myself being a Shanghai heavy, I'm much more weighted towards Shanghai formulas. And those are my comfort formulas, so to speak. I found myself moving into the spring that first year, kind of in the spring summer, switching to Yin Chao San because the symptoms fit perfectly with Yin Chao San. And I was like, wow, this is really calendrically, is that a word? By the calendar, it really seems to have shifted. And then moving into fall and winter, I was moving back to Shanghai formulas again. That's really interesting. So as the season shifted, it's not that the pathogen shifted, but as the season shifted, you've got the pathogen and you've got the person within the context of the season, and that makes a difference. From our point of view, yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, from yeah, I mean, it's one way to look at it. You know, we have all these variants that you know come out, but it doesn't matter, right? We talked about that. It doesn't matter. We have to look at this the whole context of it. That's us, right? You know, it's the thing that I love about the medicine that we practice. It's intellectually very challenging and satisfying in some way when you get it. Otherwise, it's intellectually challenging and frustrating. But it's something that I find fascinating and I love about the medicine that that we can take all these different factors into account. And in fact, it's better if you can. Yeah, for sure. And that's the beauty of it. And it's also the thing that makes it so wickedly difficult. You have to be open-minded all the time. One thing that I always continually thank my teacher for was that he didn't just teach you his method and say, this is all you need to know. I mean, he would always say these are the best methods, of course. Why wouldn't he, right? But, you know, you have to be proud of your methods. But anybody who studied with him had to read everything. If you weren't reading a book, I've seen him kick people out of his clinic. You're not reading? Get out of here. You know, go somewhere else and study with somebody else. And so, you know, my experience with him is reading the Shanghanun, reading the Wen Bing, reading, you know, all the Japanese formula books from the early 1900s. You always had to have a book there. And so when you have a change of environments, when you move from Taiwan to Seattle, when you go to, you know, I go to Nepal all the time, right? People are different. Foods are different. Climates are different. Altitudes are different. Attitudes are different. You know, everything is different. And so I've seen people study with teachers and study very well their methods and then go back home and nothing works because they don't know the stuff behind it. So I definitely have to make a shout out to my teacher, Dr. Lee, for not letting you slack and as a student. But that's Chinese medicine is so beautiful too. And when I teach, I always tell my students this. It's like, you know, Chinese medicine is, I think, the most powerful in the world because we have 2,000 years of written experience at our, at our fingertips. And if you're able to access them, I think 2,000 years over such a wide variety of, you know, peace and war and, you know, mountains and desert and, you know, all climate warming, climate cooling, you know, everything happened at some point and they wrote about it and collected it. And so we can put that on the table and use it if we have access to it. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. 
if we have that capacity. So here's the challenge as I see it these days. We've got 2,000 years of clinical history from all kinds of different doctors over different times and different conditions. All right, this may be a little controversial, but what the hell? I think a lot of times we use that as advertising. We've got 2,000 years of history. We know some shit. Well, it's been around 2,000 years. It must be pretty good. I don't think it means shit, actually, unless you can get your hands on it. But beyond getting your hands on it, how do you make it alive in this moment in your life, in your practice? That's the trick. Yeah, we've got all kinds of case studies. We have fabulous books and more now in English than we've ever had. Blue Poppy, Eastland Press, different people, Singing Dragon, all the, you know, Paradigm Press. There's a lot of people over the past 30, 40 years and all the authors that they've helped bring into English that have brought so much available to us. And maybe it's just me being lazy, but... It's one thing to know that there's a ton of information out there, and it's something else for the medicine to become alive enough, I'm going to personalize it in my experience, that I can get access to that. And I have not found that to be easy at all. You speak really good Chinese, and you spend a lot of time in Taiwan with a doctor in a very traditional way. So, you know, you've gotten a slice that most of us haven't. So I'd love to get your take, Daniel on how we take, I'm going to call it the potential of 2,000 years and make it alive in the present moment? It's a really good question. How to access that? Well, certainly, you know, roll up your sleeves and start writing out some characters and learning. It's not impossible. It's doable. And uh, Chinese gets a bad rap for being too difficult. But I actually don't think it's the written language is not as difficult as people want to think it is. I would completely agree with you on that. So it's doable. So there is that. It is, you know, accessible. And, you know, you have a lot of translations, that's for sure. But, you know, now you don't have to go to some dusty, you know, library in some, you know, back in some village in China. It's like on the internet, right? You can download almost any text you want for in five seconds for free. So the accessibility of the text is there. But, you know, you don't have to read everything. First, I think is having a little bit of confidence in our medicine, you know, having confidence that it is possible to treat disease. You know, it's not just about making people harmonizing yin and yang, and then the disease will get better on its own. We are a serious medicine. You know, you can be a jazz musician and not really play classical music. That's fine. You don't have to play every style of music. But if you play jazz music and you have confidence, you're not just kind of, you know, in your teenage room, just kind of bopping around, but you know that there is something out there that you can get very deeply into then you have the confidence to actually play and then work on it. And, you know, so I think with Chinese medicine too, you don't have to learn every style and everything, read every book out there. I mean, if you can, that's awesome. You know, you can be a polyglot or whatever, but if you just do what you do really well and have confidence that there is depth to what you need rather than searching, you know, shallowly, but broadly, but really going deep, I think you can uncover lots of stuff. And I see practitioners doing that. You know, they blow me away. It's like, you know, well, you haven't read as much as I've read, but boy, you're treating diseases really well, better than me. You know, I mean, it's the people who have the confidence and have seen Chinese medicine work on patients, not just treating what I like to say, treating the worried well, right? But actually having noticeable positive consequences for people with serious diseases. Then you can start to shift your intention in the clinic 
and actually try to help them rather than try to prep them for somebody else to treat them. What do you mean prep them for someone else to treat them? So, okay, you're here, you have some nausea, you know, you have this disease. I'll give you a little bit of yaming energy. I'll give you, make you feel more comfortable, but you're being treated actually in Seattle, like, you know, maybe by the naturopath or by the MD or by, you know, whatever. And that's all fine. I'm not saying that's bad, but the idea by the practitioner that they can't even help them is the problem. And so there's a lot of schools teach that. It's like, you're here to help patients feel better. You know, you're not here to treat patients' diseases, right? I mean, sometimes it's a legal thing that you can't say this, you can't say that, but just internally having the confidence that you can make a difference, I think that's where you start to access the magic of Chinese medicine. You know, it breaks my heart a little bit every time I hear someone in our trade say, well, Chinese medicine doesn't treat that. Maybe, but my suspicion, at least my experience has been, I don't know how to treat it yet. Maybe I'll never figure it out either, but maybe I will. I think there's a lot that we can treat. I know for myself, it's always dicey in those moments because when someone's not the worried well, when they're actually sick, it means I have to be courageous with my diagnosis. And what I mean by courageous with my diagnosis, not that my diagnosis is right, I hope it is, but most diagnoses are a working hypothesis. Here's what I think I see now. And where the courage comes in is to go, here's the diagnosis, I'm treating the diagnosis. I'm not throwing in a little this because there may be that. I'm not going to air quotes cover my bases with this or that. I'm going to go straight at what I think I see it is. Because unless I do that, I can't get the feedback I need to know, was I on target? And if I was not on target, how far off target was I? And I think that's what it takes to actually learn how to be effective. So it takes some damn courage and not a small amount of it either. No, absolutely. You're 100% right. And I should, you know, I can always tell myself in the clinic, I should do better. This is not going to work. And let's try something else. It's a problem in our medicine sometimes that we have too many choices, right? And you can see like in the classics, actually, it's very interesting, like Li Dongyuan and all these people, they were all Confucian scholars. And they all, is like this motif, you know, this theme that goes through many stories is they all witness like their mother getting sick and dying because all these Chinese doctors were called, famous people were called in, and each of them came and gave a different diagnosis, gave different medicine, and it, the disease still wasn't cured. And eventually the mother died. So that became the motivation for these people to switch careers, leave government posts and you know of wealth and power and become learn medicine and then become very famous doctors with the fact that they didn't leave Chinese medicine, they just wanted to get deeper into it and be better than what people around them were doing. And um, I'm, I'm not sure if I should go further with that, but it's a very interesting historical, for lack of a better word, a theme that plays out as a motivation for becoming excellent doctors. But it's the problem is just that even good doctors you put, you know, five or 10 good doctors, you know, excellent master doctors in a room looking at the same patient, they might have very different views of what that patient is based on their own experience. But as long as they can treat that patient well, then it may be five of them are right. Five out of 10, or maybe seven out of 10. I think this is a really difficult thing for us Westerners to wrap our brain around 
that there's more than one right answer. I mean, that sounds kind of nice. Oh, there's more than one right answer. And I'm not talking about like your truth, my truth, because that's always an opinion. But to actually, I know this has been tough for me to wrap my mind around. There's more than one helpful, I'm not going to say right way, because that, that's immediately going to take me down the wrong rabbit hole. There's more than one effective, helpful way to treat somebody. And yeah, it has to do with who that patient is. It has to do with who that doctor is, the experience that doctor has had, what they've seen and what they're capable of seeing. And again, it's one of the things about the medicine. It's like, wow, that's really interesting. And oh man, that's really troublesome. Because good luck with evidence-based medicine. You know, and increasingly, uh, our medicine is finding its way into hospitals. And, in, you know, I'm using air quotes, integrative care. I don't even know what that means. Except that we're supposed to have some kind of protocol in some sort of way that can be replicated person to person to person. And East Asian medicine just don't work that way. Not at its high level. You know, I think the doctors that I've noticed that are very skilled, they're very systematic in their thinking. They're not, you know, 10 different people, 10 completely different treatments, you know, randomly. I mean, they do create a system. I think that's the way human minds work at their best. And I'm not so good at this, but when you see people who are able to categorize different things and make models for themselves, so that, you know, it may not be the same model as the person next to them, but within their own system, it works very well. Got it. Okay. That's actually really helpful that it's not random and it's not just, oh, we have different opinions. These really top level practitioners, they are systematic in their thinking. However they come to it, they're going to be working their systematic way of doing it. This other high level practitioner could work really different, but they're also systematic within their approach. And I think it explains why, if you're learning a system of medicine, whichever one it is you're learning, learn the system, like get the system down completely and don't go riffing on it and don't try to mix it in with something else. And at least not until you can be that sort of boss level practitioner. Absolutely. It works uh, for music. It works for martial arts. It works for any discipline that you want to get good at. You know, if you want to learn how to be a master Italian chef, learn it really well, and then maybe go on and learn French cooking. You know, I don't know. But once you get the skills of one and you master them, maybe you don't need to go anywhere else. But if you do, you can use those skills to blend into the next area of specialty. But if you're trying to do everything at once, it never is a good idea. Yeah. No, then you end up with spam. So Daniel, before we wind this down, what would you say your big learning has been from these past three plague years? What's it taught you? Great question. I mean, on a personal level, it's, you know, that's one thing. I've been very fortunate that I haven't had to too much isolation. My business continued. I was legally allowed to continue my business. So I haven't had that much disruption. In terms of, you know, medically, professionally, I think it's been really a very valuable experience um, using formulas and seeing them work. And you can tell how they're working very well because there's not a lot of interference with other medical systems, which you get in, in a lot of patients, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. There's, there's so many practitioners that 
most patients are seeing are overlapping, right? So, but with COVID, there wasn't much. You know, doctors were, you know, if, if you have an emergency, go to the ER room and get some oxygen. Otherwise, you know, there's nothing much I can do before Paxlovid came out. But now they're doing that. But before that, which is like a year and a half of this, maybe, there was nothing. You know, it was like 100%. If it worked, it worked. If it didn't, let's try something else. And so that was good. And, you know, you can see these formulas, those tried and true Shanghan formulas, Da Qingdong Tang, Gugan Tang. I actually ended up starting to use Xiao Chai Hu Tang. I'd have to go back and look at all my records, but Xiao Chai Hu Tang became my prominent formula, mostly because we don't have Ma Huang, right? It's not so easily available in the States. So the formulas like Da Qingdong and Gugan Tang and Ma Xing Shi Gan Tang, you know, they're all Ma Huang formulas. So Xiao Chai Hu Tang actually started to use that and with some modification, with a lot of modifications. I mean, not a pile of modifications, but significant adjusting to make up for no mahuang. So this was in the early stages or more later stages of people being sick? Because I often think of Xiao Chai Hutang as something used toward the end to kind of get them out of that in between. I'm not sick. I'm kind of sick. Maybe I'm sick. Oh, I'm sick. Oh, I'm not sick. You know, that, that back and forth. Were you using that earlier on? I did for some people. I adjusted it. Ginger was a big addition. I mean, it's already in there, but became a prominent part of it. And that's for releasing the exterior in the way that Mahuang would have. Right. I added Guajir into it also. So it became kind of like a Chaihu Guajir Tang. Uh, so that actually worked really well. But, you know, there were a few patients that I treated right at the beginning, and I used a very strong dose of Gugan Tang. I think Gugan like 20, 30 grams, 40 grams, and then um, Guajir probably 20 grams. I'd have to go back to my records, but, you know, not six grams or nine grams, but, you know, put the meat on the table, so to speak. And then by the next morning, they were good. It was very rapid, very fast changeover. Xiao Chaiyutang worked very well, very flexibly for a lot of people, but certainly not for everybody. People with coughs, Maimandong Tang was very useful. You know, I have my go-tos. It's like, you know, you grow up with toast in the morning. So when you need to reach for something, toast is your comfort food, right? For me, those formulas are my comfort formulas. Well, you know, like you were saying, you learn something systemically, you understand it systemically, and then you can do all kinds of things with it because it's all within your wheelhouse. You know, it's like, remember back in the old days, Mission Impossible for Tom Cruise? Where, you know, there'd be like, you know, here's your mission, blah, blah, blah. And then you'd like, you know, go through the different pictures. Well, I'm going to have the guy who knows electronics. And I got the guy who, uh, you know, knows how to, you know, social engineer his way into an elevator. And, you know, I mean, whatever. And so you got formulas that do that. You know your team. When you know your team, you can do a lot with them. That's right. That's right. You can start to move within those formulas and create a lot of effect if you know them very well. You don't need to have a million formulas in most cases. Have you found that as time has gone on, you use fewer and fewer formulas and fewer and fewer herbs? Or you just stay with your team? I'm going to say yes with a no on the side. Because one of the problems with using a formula that you know really well, you know, even though it works, is that there's always something else out there that is interesting to try. And so every now and then, or, you know, you're reading, you sit and you read somebody's you know, case study or formula from, you know, whatever modern or classic time, you go, oh, that's really cool. You know, and I have a patient that that might fit. And so you use it and give it a try. So my formulas are relatively consistent, 
but they do morph over the years. You know, I've added herbs in and tried them and sometimes they work really well and I'll keep them. Sometimes they don't. And then I have like an extra bottle sitting on my shelf for 30 years, but, or well, not that long, but you know, you know what I mean, right? Then I try something else. And I've seen that with the good teachers, you know, they have the formulas that are just their standards, you know, Guizhutang, Yin Chao San, whatever it happens to be, those are the go-to ones, Shang Xia, Liu Jun Zetang. But then all of a sudden they start to use something different. And I've seen Dr. Lee do that. You know, he'll add something in that he never did before. And then he'll use it on all these patients for like two or three months. And then he starts to hone in on like, oh, it's good for this type, but not for that type. And then he starts to pull back and then you see kind of winding in and out a little bit. And then, you know, become established as, okay, this is what this is for. That sounds like a good prescription for learning how to make prescriptions. Yes. Yeah. So I'd like to say that, you know, this box works for this patient and that's always what I'm going to give. But, you know, it, it doesn't always, you know, and you have to, to be ready to, um, to shift gears sometimes, try new things. Well, maybe at some point we all uh, could sit down and do an episode on Daniel Altshuler's greatest hits. The formulas that you like to use and you use them a lot, you know, the sort of go-tos. I mean, everyone's got go-tos and, you know, but I'd love to have the conversation with you, not because, oh, hey, here's some go-tos and y'all should use those because they're Daniel's go-tos, but because, you know, to hear your thinking behind them, because that's the interesting part. You're right. That is true. That is. It's the fun thing. I'll have to get some thinking before I do that interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good idea to think, but maybe not too much. Well, my friend, as they said here, as they used to say in our car, car talk, well, we've wasted another hour. The only waste about it is that we weren't actually having some tea, which is the way I like to talk with you the best, Michael. I'm hoping to uh, be able to bring the kid and the family out to the West Coast this summer and we, we can have tea and cookies. All right, my friend. Always great to hang out. Thank you so much for uh, the little jaunt today with COVID. Thank you for inviting me on this wonderful geological podcast. It's really amazing. Thank you. It's easy to imagine that we know something about treating epidemic disease because we have thousands of years of documented use of herbal medicine to treat these kinds of troublesome infectious issues. But having the instructions for something and having the know-how are two very different things. And with any challenge, it's an opportunity to distill some clarity and to get better at what we do. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.